Praise the Lord. Good to see everybody. Once again, happy Mother's Day, moms. We love you. We thank God for all the hard work you give to your families, and uh, it's a labor of love. We know that, but God bless you. And if you would, turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 17. If you're new with us, welcome. We are working our way through John's Gospel here at Calvary on Sunday morning. And as I told first service, just to get it out there, plan on meeting in John's Gospel till about a three or four weeks after the rapture. We'll, we'll finish it up. So Now, after the rapture, Jesus does all the teaching, and that's the way we want it. Amen? But right now, you're stuck with me. So, we have been studying John's Gospel. We are in chapter 17, and uh, we have been studying Jesus' prayer to his Father on the night before his crucifixion. And here's something please don't miss. A prayer he prayed with his disciples standing there listening. Think about that. Why did he pray this very intimate prayer to his father in their presence? Well, so that they would know and understand what was most important to him with regard to their welfare and the kingdom of God going forward, no doubt. But I think the big reason he prayed this prayer in their presence was because these were things he wanted to be the focus of their prayers for one another after he returned to his father and they continued to work at the kingdom in his absence. As we have been saying, and I hope I've communicated this well enough, the reason we have taken so much time in John 17 is because no other portion of the Bible gives us a greater look into the heart of our Savior for his people, for the kingdom, for the glory of God than does John 17. And as we've been going through it, the thing I wanted to communicate is because we get this intimate look into the heart of Jesus, I've called this series With Jesus Behind the Veil, because this is where he's praying to his Father. It's like the holy of holies of prayer of the Bible. And um, But here, Jesus stops teaching them directly. Now, from verse chapters 13 through 16, the Lord has been teaching them directly one last time before the cross, right? His, his farewell address, we've called it. But now he teaches them not directly, but indirectly. He stops right there and begins to pray for them to the Father. Yes, he's praying for them to the Father that the Father would intervene and do certain things in their lives. Yes. But this prayer was also for their benefit because it further teaches, not by direct input, by, by inference, by indirect input, what was most important to him on that night for them before the cross, that when he goes back to the Father, they would continue to understand these are the things the Lord prayed for on the night before the cross. These are the things he wants us to continue to pray for one another in the work of the kingdom going forward. Can't stress that enough, guys. So this prayer is divided into three main parts. Jesus prays for himself. Jesus prays for his disciples, those that were with him those three and a half years. And then Jesus prays for all believers, which would include everybody in this room who is a Christian. Now, we are currently in the second main part of this prayer, which covers from verses, covers verses six, 6 to 19, where Jesus prays for his disciples. And just once again, this section of Scripture contains what 
uh, Jesus was most concerned about for his disciples on the night before his crucifixion. His prayer is made up of three main points. Number one, that the Father would use them. In other words, use them to bring Jesus glory. Verses 9 and 10, that the Father would keep them. Verses 11, uh, 11 through 13. And thirdly, that the Father would sanctify them, verses 14 to 19. Now, we have been in that second one, that the Father would keep them. And so let's pick it up in verse 11, where Jesus said to his Father, Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world, my disciples, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep them through your name, those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me, I have kept. And none of them is lost except the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy in themselves. Jump down to verse 15. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one, from the devil. Now, guys, just by way of quick review, Jesus' prayer to his Father that he would keep his disciples from the devil falls into four basic parts or uh, requests. And we've, we've studied the first three. I'll just read them to you, though. That the Father would keep them from damnation. In other words, that they would be eternally secure. That they would never go to hell once they put their faith in Christ. Number two, that the Father would keep them from death, physical death, that Satan would not be allowed to kill them because the devil, Jesus knew, uh, the devil would want to kill these guys, sure as looking at them. And so Jesus prayed that the devil would not be allowed to, to kill Jesus' disciples until they finished the work, whatever that would be for each disciple's life, until they would finish the work that God had given them to do. Yeah, but then he can kill me after that. God will just take you home. I'm convinced once you finish whatever God's assigned to you, he's taking you home because he wants you with him. Precious in the sight of the Lord are the death of his saints because they're with him. When you're finished with the work God's given you to do here, I don't think he's going to leave you down here a second longer. However you go from this planet, heart attack, whatever it might be, God's taking you home. But you have... We have been guaranteed by Jesus praying for us that we will have time to finish the work God's given us to do and that the devil who wants to kill us like nobody's business would not be able to touch us, to take us off this earth until God says, I'm done with you. You finished the work I've given you. Come on up home. Come home. And then number four, that the Father would keep them from defilement, that the Father would keep them from the corruption of the world. Now, last week we looked at number three, that the Father would keep them from division. Let's read verse 11. Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. And so, as we said last week, when Jesus prays this to his Father, he is praying that his disciples would always be in unity with each other. The statement that they may be one as we are one indicates he wanted them, us, to have the same kind of unity, oneness, that Jesus had with the Father. Now, as we said last time, unity leads to joy. 
Unity leads, oh, how good and how pleasant it is when brethren dwell together in unity. But as we said last week, unity leads to joy, which Jesus actually coupled the two together in verse 13. We studied that. So unity leads to joy, but also to victory, to victory. There is strength in numbers. There is strength in numbers. Whereas division leads to strife and defeat. So unity leads to joy and victory. Division leads to strife and defeat. As I said last week, unity is of the Holy Spirit, whereas division is of the devil, whose main strategy has always been and continues to be divide and conquer. He cannot defeat us when we are walking in unity. Jesus knew that. That's why he prayed for it. Because it was all about these men being successful as they went out into the world to continue on the work of the, of the kingdom, going into all the world and, uh, and preaching the gospel to everyone and bringing people into the kingdom. He was giving them that, uh, turning the mantle over to them very shortly to do that. And he knew that um, unity was critical. Unity was critical. And um, as we said last week, unity is impossible without humility. You can go online, listen to last week's study. Let me say it again. Unity is impossible without humility. Humility essentially is dying to self. When you are dead to self, you are humble. Now be careful. You might have a good day where you're dead to self. Next day, be careful because the flesh resurrects constantly. It will take charge again. That's why it's an ongoing thing, right? An ongoing thing. But listen, the devil could never sow discord and division into a family or a church without pride, pride being the opposite of humility. And you could check out last week's study once again as we went through this in detail. So number four, Jesus prayed that the Father would keep them from defilement. Now let me read verse 11 one more time. I, now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world. And I come to you, Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are one. Notice the emphasis on the word holy. Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me. Guys, in praying that the Father would keep his disciples, Jesus' disciples, and then emphasizing the fact that the Father is holy, I believe it indicates that Jesus is praying that the Father would keep his disciples holy even as he himself is holy. You know, I saw George Varner. George Varner is a Christian pollster. He, uh, he polls Christians, asking them various questions. And he asked a group of Christians uh, some time ago, uh, what they felt about holiness. Most professing Christians didn't think it was a big deal. Some didn't even know what it was, even though they professed to have a strong faith in God. The word holy comes from a Greek word that means separated or set apart. We'll have more to say about this next time, but for now understand that the only way to stay undefiled by the world is to remain separate from the world. Turn to first, second Corinthians chapter six. We say it again, the only way to stay undefiled by the world is to remain separate from the world. This is something that Paul emphasized in Second Corinthians six. 
I want to read to you verses 16 to 18. I want to read it, read it out of the NLT second edition. But you can follow along in your translation. And what union can there be between God's temple and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will live in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from among unbelievers. Don't have fellowship with them. You can witness to them. But don't hang out with them in the sense of having fellowship with them. Therefore, come out of them. Come out from among unbelievers and separate yourselves from them, says the Lord. Don't touch their filthy things. And I will welcome you. And I will be your father. And you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Very important passage. And so here in John 17, verse 11, when Jesus prays, Holy Father, keep to your name those whom you have given me, he is essentially praying that the Father would keep them, Jesus' disciples, from the defilement or from the corruption of the world. Now look, as you read the Old Testament, I hope you do. I, there are Christians who don't think the Old Testament is worth reading anymore because they've kind of labeled it the, 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 the outdated testament, you know? Like, that was old news, and then we got the New Testament. That's the new news. That's the current news. It's all the Word of God. Okay, it's all the Word of God. All right? And in the Old Testament, God told His people, Israel, what was unclean, corrupt, and defiled. And he said this all the way through the Old Testament, especially in the first five books, the Pentateuch, Genesis through Deuteronomy. But he told them very specifically what was defiled, what was unclean. And he told them if they came in contact with these things, he forbid it, but if they said if they, he said if they did come in contact with these things, uh, they would become defiled, corrupted, and their fellowship with God would be severed until they brought up the appropriate animal sacrifice to make atonement. Now listen, we can look at dozens and dozens of passages. I, I don't think you need, we need to do that. I'll give you one example. Turn to Leviticus chapter 18. And again, I'll read it to you out of the NLT too. Leviticus 18 starting with verse 20. And this is just one sampling. Okay, guys, one sampling of what God labeled defiling. He said in verse 20, Do not defile yourselves by having sexual intercourse with your neighbor's wife. Do not permit any of your children to be offered as a sacrifice to Molech. Child sacrifice. Uh, we have a practice like that today. It's called abortion. There's forgiveness for women who abort their children, if they seek it. It's there. It's not the unpardonable sin, but it is a sin. And listen, make no moans about it. There are people today that were meeting at the Supreme Courthouse chanting, thank God for abortion. Thank God for giving us abortion. I, I, I almost wept. I prayed. I did pray for them. How deceived can you be but abortion is offering a sac offering a child as a sacrifice to the god Molech, god of pleasure i don't want to be strapped with a child um, 
I'm not ready. Whatever. Okay? This was a practice back in Israel's day. Different form, same idea. Um, don't permit any of your children to be offered to the god Molech as a human sacrifice. You, for you must not profane the name of the Lord, of the name of your God, I am the Lord. Do not practice homosexuality. Having sex with another man is with a woman. It is a detestable or a defiling sin. A man must not defile himself by having sex with an animal. And a woman must not defile herself to a, uh, must not offer herself to a male animal to have intercourse with it. It is a perverse act. Do not defile yourselves in any of these ways, for the people I am driving out before you, the Canaanites, uh, driving out before you have defiled themselves in all these ways. Verse 25, because the entire land has become defiled, I am punishing the people who live there. I will cause the land to vomit them out. America, you better listen to what God is saying. Verse 26, you must obey all my decrees and regulations. You must not commit any of these detestable or defiling sins. This applies both to native-born Israelites and to the foreigners living among you. All these detestable activities are practiced by the people of the land where I am taking you, and this is how the land has become defiled. So in the Old Testament, a person was defiled when they came in contact with anything God declared was unclean. God declared. I'll give you one more verse, uh, Levitic, verses, Leviticus 5, verses 2 and 3, where God said, If a person touches any unclean thing, whether it is the carcass of an unclean beast or the carcass of an unclean livestock or the carcass of an unclean creeping, uh, creeping things, and he is unaware of it, he also shall be, shall be unclean and guilty. Or if he touches human uncleanness, whatever uncleanness with which a man may be defiled, and he is unaware of it, when he realizes it, then he shall be guilty. In other words, you know, just because you're not aware you've committed a sin, it's still a sin. And of course, people can't repent of what they don't know they've committed, so God eventually will show it to them, and then the passage goes on to say, here's what you do to make atonement. Here's the animals you bring, and such and such and so and so, to make atonement to restore our fellowship if you do touch an unclean thing and become defiled, right? So again, guys, a person becomes defiled when they come in contact with something that God declared was unclean, and that was in the Old Testament. You say, what about the New Testament? Well, let me just put it succinctly. Essentially, under the New Covenant, coming into contact with the world is to be defiled. Coming in contact with the world is to be defiled. Now, I'm sure some would be thinking to themselves at this point, but listen, we live in the world. So how can we help but come in contact with it? I'm not talking about coming in contact with the world in the sense of living on planet Earth. I'm talking about the world in the sense of the fallen world system that Satan is in control of. And we all know, as Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, that uh, the, the devil is the god of this world. He's in control. In fact, John tells us in his first epistle, chapter 5, verse 19, we know that we are of God, but the whole world is under the sway or control of the wicked one, Satan. Guys, as Christians, we are living in the world. 
but we must never be a part of or in fellowship with the world. We must, by the power of the Holy Spirit, don't miss, don't miss that, we must, by the power of the Holy Spirit, learn to be in the world, in the world serving God, while remaining separate from the world. As the old saying goes, it's okay for the ship to be in the sea, but watch out when the sea gets into the ship. And it's okay for the Christian to be in the world because that's where God's put us. But God help us if the world gets into the Christian because we're the light. If Satan can bring us down, extinguish our light, God help the world who needs our Savior. Right? But guys, this is really at the heart of spiritual warfare. We talk about spiritual warfare. You turn on the TV and you got some character, you know, casting demons of chocolate cake out of people and all kinds of weird things. You go, well, that's really spiritual warfare. That's that's theatrics. That that's you know that's goofiness. Spiritual warfare, at its core, you want to know what it is, and it all starts with us. Yeah, it make. It manifests itself in the lives of people we love and those around us in different ways. Let's just talk about us for a minute. What is the heart of spiritual warfare? Well, I've said it before. Let me say it again. Spiritual warfare is all about Satan gaining control of our thinking. That's why the Bible commands us in more than a few places. Once you get saved, don't be conformed any longer to this world's way of thinking, but rather be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And you say, okay, well, what's Satan doing in my mind? What's he doing in my thinking? He is trying to get us to love the world more than we love God. That, that's in a nutshell. If the devil can get us to love the world more than God, he can neutralize our walk, put our light out, and even though he's lost us, we're going to heaven, okay. But he doesn't want us touching anyone else or being used by God to save anyone else. I'll say it again. The heart of spiritual warfare is a battle for control of our hearts, in who or what we are going to love more, either God or this world. Turn to 1 John 2. You all know it, but we should touch on it. 1 John 2. Let's start with verse 15, where John commands us, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. You know, there are some people who are trying to love both. And if you pin them down, they'll tell you, well, I love God, but I kind of love the world too. I can love both. Well, no, the Bible says you can't. Jesus said either you're for me or you're what? Against me. Here John says, either you love the world or you love God the Father, God. You can't love them both. And you won't hate them both. Anyone who loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Verse 16. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it, but he, she, who does the will of God abides forever. Very important. Uh, let me just briefly say this about the passage. When John says that children of God must not love the world, he uses the Greek word cosmos. Cosmos is a word that doesn't mean the planet Earth, as we have said, but it means the fallen world system which is controlled by Satan. 
I mean, planet Earth was created by God and is a beautiful and awesome thing to behold. But it is not to be worshipped, as Paul commanded us in Romans 1, verses 20 to 25. And that is the classic, the, uh, the classic mistake many unbelievers make. They look into the creation. They look at the world and the universe and so on. And instead of humbling themselves, falling to their face and saying, this has got design everywhere. There must have been a God who created it. And I want to know him. I want to worship that God. If the creation made by God points you to the creator, where you worship him, the creation has done its job. If you look at the creation and worship the creation rather than the creator, the devil has done his, his job. He's turned you away from the truth of God, who is to be worshipped, and he's got you on something else, right, to, to worship. I was telling first service, this is very important that we understand Spiritual warfare is all about us loving God more than the world. Well, what, how does that manifest itself in our lives? Well, by loving people, right? I mean, Jesus, I've come to seek and to save what? The planet? So let's go ahead and give a hoot and not pollute? I mean, you know, some people think that this is what, why Jesus came to the earth, right? When you look at the creation, when I say creation, I mean everything... And everyone God has created. Look at the whole creation in terms of red tags and green tags. What do you mean? Everything that is not going to survive, everything that is going is only for time but not eternity, has a red tag. Now that would include your 401k. That would include your favorite hobby. That would include whatever you're into apart from, you know, trying to reach people for Christ, all of these things have red tags. They're all going to be burned up someday and go out of existence. The only things that have green tags are people. They're the only things that are important. This was on the heart of Jesus. On his heart this night, he had people on his heart, and primarily at this point, his disciples. But by extension, all believers, which he prays for, all of us in verses 20 to 26. Jesus didn't come to save things or to promote things. He said things like, don't lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth, rust, destroy, thieves break in and steal. Someday they're going to be burned up. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. How do you lay up treasures in heaven? By serving God to, to touch others and bring them to Christ. This is so important, guys. Earth, beautiful. Creation, wonderful. Cosmos, don't love the world. That's not planet Earth. That refers to the domain of Satan, who is the god of this world with all of its temptations and lusts. And therefore, we must, as the people of God, we must not love the world. We are God's people. We are to love him supremely. And we are to have his heart. We are to love the things he loved. And he loves people. God so loved the world. Not the world planet. Not the domain of Satan. 
But everybody who was lost, God so loved that he sent his only begotten son to die for them, for us. That everyone who wants to can go to heaven and have everlasting life. But this world cosmos is the domain of Satan. It must not be loved by the people of God. In fact, in fact James tells us in James 4, verse 4, friendship with the world is what? Enmity with God. One pastor put it this way, said, and I quote, Cosmos, world, does not refer to the physical earth or universe, but rather to the spiritual reality of the man-centered, Satan-directed system of this present age, which is hostile to God and God's people. It refers to the self-centered, godless value system and mores of fallen mankind. The goal of the world is self-glory, self-fulfillment, self-indulgence, self-satisfaction, and every other form of self-serving, all of which amounts to hostility towards God, end quote. I absolutely agree. Turn over to James 1. James says something about this I think we ought to touch on. James chapter 1, let's pick it up in verse 26. If anyone among you thinks he is religious, don't let that word stumble you. If any among you thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this to visit orphans and widows in their trouble, and to keep oneself unspotted, in other words, undefiled and corrupted from the world. One author said when James talks about pure religion, um, it has nothing to do with ceremonies and temples or special days. Pure religion means practicing God's word and sharing it with others through speech, service, and separation from the world. He said, we are sent into the world to win others to Christ. It is only as we maintain our separation from the world that we can serve and be used to save others, end quote. Now you understand why this subject was so much on the heart of Jesus the night before he went to the cross and why he brought it to his father in prayer for his disciples. He knew that they could never reach the world with the gospel if they became defiled by the world. And they could, they could only remain undefiled by the world if they remained separate from the world. Guys, the world is a defiling place. I think you all know that. You can hardly watch the news anymore without taking a shower afterwards. You feel unclean just watching the, the news. That the world is a defiling place with many things that will corrupt our walks with the Lord and break our fellowship with Him. And it's been designed by the devil to do that very thing. When that happens, when we allow the, to, ourselves to become, defiled, be, to become defiled by the world, by the world's corruption, the connection that we have with the Lord is broken. No, it's not broken forever. We need to repent. Bible says, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you your sins, cleanse you from all unrighteousness. We so have to acknowledge the sin, confess it to God, repent of it. But before you do that, if you are defiled by the world in some way, our fellowship with God is broken. 
the connection we have with the Holy Spirit is severed. And all the life of God that is flowing from God into our lives to the power of the Holy Spirit stops. It stops. It, it dry, the flow of power in and through our lives dries up. And what happens? We become impotent and ineffectual, spiritually speaking. We might still be going to church like David after he sinned with Bathsheba. He was out of fellowship with God for a whole year. Read Psalm 32 and Psalm 51. He talks about how miserable that was. Serving God? I don't think so. He could barely survive physically during this time because the hand of God was so heavy upon him wanting David to repent so he could restore David. God wants us to repent when we sin. He doesn't want us staying in um, uh, that sinful condition for long. If we blow it, we blow it. We're all weak. We're all human. But don't lay there. Don't justify it. Don't excuse it and go on in broken fellowship. Fess up. Confess your sin. Bring your heart before the Lord. He'll forgive you, reconnect you, and begin to use you once again. But as I said, the world is a defiling place. The God of this world has orchestrated everything in the world, as we just saw in 1 John 2, 15 to 17. Everything in the world has been orchestrated by the devil to appeal to the lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, pride of life, all designed to break our fellowship with God, get us to love the world more than the Lord, to neutralize our walk, to take us out of the race, so that we're no longer a threat to Satan's kingdom. There are many ways we can be defiled by the world, and good heavens, I don't want to spend the rest of the morning listing them. You can figure out what they are too. Anything that's not of God has a tendency to defile us, not has a, uh, has a tendency if we partake in it. Just because it's there doesn't mean it will defile us if we don't partake in whatever it is, right? But I'll just give you a few examples. We can be defiled by the world through drugs, alcohol, pornography, a hunger for power. Many of our politicians, that's the only reason they're in office. They hunger for power. You can be defiled through things like greed and lust. Lust uh, with regard to sexual lust or material lust, lusting after material things. I mean, the world's entertainment today is super defiling, including things like TV shows. I was telling first service, when our kids were young, so going back 35 years, Friday night was family night for us. And one of the stations had a family lineup. There was three or four shows that were all family-oriented and, and were very innocent and had a good moral uh, message they were preaching. And so the kids, we'd all have popcorn, and we'd all sit there and watch these family shows on Friday. That was our family night, right? That's long gone. That is long gone. My wife and I don't watch any TV except maybe the, you know, the uh, home, and home and Garden Network and those folks that fix things. And that's about it. But TV has gotten so defiling. But, of course, movies. Movies as well. Music. How defiling is music? Yeah, forget the gangster rap and the, and the, and the hip-hop and all that, but there's just other things. Country Western, which used to be kind of godlike, wow, that's even gotten corrupted. Music. And, and, and let's not forget so much of the junk that people feed their minds on on YouTube. It doesn't all have to be overtly sinful. 
It just can feed into your mind a way of thinking that is not really godly. And now you add social media to the mix. Things like, you know, Facebook and Twitter and TikTok. And let me just say this. I had to Google this. I'm not on any of it. Uh, you know, what are examples of social media? These came up. I just cut and pasted them. I don't know. what. So you say, you know, things like, you know, Facebook, Twitter, TikTok, Instagram, Tumblr, Flickr. You might go, those, two of those are really bad. I'll take your word for it. I don't know. I'm not on any of them. My goal in life is to go through life without one tattoo and never being on Facebook. <laughs> i got to be careful. i got a son-in-law that's pretty tattered up. I'm not against that tattoos. That's my goal. And we'll throw in an earring. Earrings in there, too. I just One of you guys' earrings, God bless you. I'm just, you know what? I'm, I'm not cool enough to have an earring. Amen. Not cool enough. But, you know, you add social media to the mix today, which, which elevates the devil's defilements to a whole new level. Isn't it interesting, the timing? I believe we're very, very close to Jesus' return. Very close. I think the devil senses that. I mean, we don't know when the timing of the rapture is going to be, but we know if the second coming is getting close because of all the prophecies being fulfilled. Rapture takes place takes place before the second coming the signs of his coming are getting are everywhere around us it means the raptures are about ready to happen right you know, there's there's a lot of social media that is good people use it for good things uh, somebody said one time the internet talking about the internet before social media um, the internet the internet's evil the pastors what's it's not really evil it's neutral it's like a big city in any big city, there's beautiful places you can go, art museums and different places where you can get culture and things like that. And then there are seedy parts of town that you will be defiled if you go into. That's up to you. The Internet's like that. You can hang out in the places on the Internet where you can study the Bible, you can learn history, you can all kinds of things. That's good. Stay away from the junk. Same is true with social media, right? But it's interesting how the devil has you know, has um, been using social media, which is a relatively new phenomenon, right at a time when the rapture of the church is about ready to take place. And so many Christians are preoccupied and distracted by social media. Their, their minds are not in the game anymore. What did Peter say? Gird up the loins of your mind and prepare yourself for Jesus' coming. Distractions, right? Everywhere. Well, listen, even for Christians who stay away from most of those defiling media and social media outlets, there are other ways we can be defiled. And I, I know that you know this. I'm just going to read to you two passages, and uh, we'll, we'll move on. But I want to just show you how that we Christians, you know, sometimes Christians say, well, I'm not on Facebook. I don't, I don't Twitter. I don't tweet. We tweet. I don't do any of that. I'm looking at Angie. She's like me. We don't know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just taking comfort in your pain, because I don't know either. But I'll just read you these two. You don't have to turn to them. 
Hebrews 12, 14 to 15. Pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. Looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. You can go online and listen to our study in Hebrews 12 to understand what all is being said here. But I'll just say this. Uh, whatever a root of bitterness is, it's caused by pride and unforgiveness. A lot of pride and unforgiveness in the church of Jesus Christ, which causes a lot of roots of bitterness to grow up, defiling whole churches, destroying churches, and so on. James 3, verse 6, And the tongue is a fire a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body. How? Gossip and slander, which we share with each other under the guise of prayer requests. And sets on fire the course of nature and is set on fire by hell. All right. What are some of the things that we can do to keep from being defiled by the world? Remembering that the best defense is a good, strong offense. I'm just going to give you these. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on these. They're pretty self-explanatory. First of all, how do we stay undefiled from, from the world? First of all, purposing in your heart to live an undefiled life for God. It all starts in the heart, guys. And I always go back to Daniel chapter 1 where Daniel and his three friends were uh, Jews had, that had been taken captive to Babylon. They were in their uh, teens when this happened. And because they were so intelligent, so bright, they were put into the king's uh, wise men program. Babylonians always took the best and the brightest to put as counselors and leaders and so on. So Daniel and his three buddies fell into that category. And this group of guys, because they were a special group, got special food. Special meats, delicacies, uh, wine, all of which had been sacrificed, or excuse me, all of which had been offered to pagan deities. It was, it was all offered to pagan idols. Daniel 1 verse 8, But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with a portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore he requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might and his friends might not defile themselves by eating vegetables. You remember the story, right? Of course, the king's meat that had been sacrificed to idols was probably the best, choicest cuts of meat you could, you could ever get. But Daniel and his buddies they purposed in their heart that their love for God and their commitment to him was greater than whatever the Babylonians would put in front of them. He could have had the, mind, the mindset, well, you know, we are 700 miles away from Jerusalem. You know, I mean, when in Rome, <laughs> that came a little later, when in Rome, do as the Romans do, right? Hey, God can't expect us to live for him in Babylon, as we did in Jerusalem. Yeah, I think God does expect that. I think that, God, and shame on Christians who act one way in church, but then another way in the world. That's called hypocrisy. We are to live for God 
The same way whether we're in church among God's people or out in the world among the people of the world. God blessed Daniel and his buddies that they purposed, no, 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 we're in Babylon, but that doesn't change the fact that we are committed to our God. And we're going to live for him no matter what, right? Guys, let me just say this, we'll move on. You won't live the Christian life on accident. We've talked about this. You have to live it on purpose. That's what we're getting at here. And that starts in the heart with your personal commitment to God. You will know how strong, we all think our commitment to God is really strong. You will know how strong your commitment to God really is by how much of the world, how much carnality is in your heart. And only you know that, you and God. Because your commitment to God will be directly proportionate to how much you love God as opposed to how much you love the world. We talked about that. It all starts in the heart with your personal commitment to God. Where is it? Where are you? Uh, number one, purpose in your heart that you're going to live an undefiled life for God. It's got to be in your heart. It's got to be a desire, right? Number two, how do you stay undefiled from the world or by the world, planning your day so as to live an undefiled life for God. What do I mean? Well, if you plan your day, I mean, in other words, what you're going to do and, listen, not do, where you're going to go and not go, who you're going to hang with or not hang with, well, you will keep from being defiled. You will keep from being defiled to a minimum and experience victory in your life on a much greater level. Let me put it this way. This works for dieting. Not that I'm an expert. This works for dieting. Don't impulse eat, right? Don't impulse eat. Plan your meals ahead of time and stick to a good nutritional diet plan. Most of the time, we fall into temptation when we are, listen, meandering throughout day or channel surfing at night or are idle and are not living with purpose by planning ahead. Let's just make it easy. Fill your day, your week with God. Church, Bible study, serving God in whatever capacity he's called you to. Look, I don't agree with everything AA teaches, Alcoholics Anonymous. There's a lot of things I don't agree with. Well, one thing they got right. They said, look, if you're an alcoholic, you've got, you're spending all this time every day drinking. If you're going to be sober, you've got to fill that time with something else, something productive. Otherwise, you're going to go, if you have all this idle time, you're going to go back to drinking. Same thing is true in the Christian life. Before we got saved, we were involved in all these sinful activities. Now that we're saved, we've got to fill in that those times with God. We've got to fill in that time with God, serving God, hanging with God's people, Bible studies, and so on. That's so important. If you busy yourself about your father's business, didn't Jesus say that? When they found him in the temple teaching, you, you know, why did you come here, Mary and Joseph said. You know, you, me and, and your father were worried about you. Me and Joseph. What did he say? Didn't you realize I must be about my father's business? If you're always about your father's business, 
the devil won't be able to use idolists against you like he did with King David. Remember? David was in his 50s, just built himself a beautiful new cedar palace. It says in the spring of the year when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab as general and he stayed back. This gave him a lot of idle time. One night, boredom, idleness. He starts taking a stroll on top of his palace roof, which was a patio, looks at a house down underneath, beautiful woman bathing on her rooftop. He lusts after her, sends his servants. They take her. He lies with her. And that whole sordid mess between David and Bathsheba takes place. If David had been where he was supposed to be, on the battlefield, fighting the battles of the Lord, the devil would never have tripped him up. That's a good lesson for all of us. These things in the Old Testament, Paul said, were, were written for our what? Learning. Learning. Learn from the mistakes of others, that you don't have to make them yourself. Number three, how do we keep from being defiled by the world? Well, purging your house so as to uh, live an undefiled life for God. This is very important, okay? The environment where you spend most of your time, which is inside your home, needs to be a sanctified place, a safe place from temptation and sin. So often it's just the opposite. Because Christians are putting a facade on when they're out in public or especially hanging with other Christians and they go home and their houses are a den of iniquity. Because there they can sin with impunity, or so they think. Nobody sees. Oh, except God. Except God, whose nothing is hidden in his sight. He sees it all. Purging your house, guys, starts with purging your heart. That's where it all starts. Look at Psalm, I mean, I'll just read you Psalm 101, verses 2 to 4. David wrote this. Who knows if he wrote this after, before Bathsheba or after? I don't know. It's interesting. He said, I will behave wisely in a perfect way. I will walk within my house with a perfect heart. I will set nothing wicked before my eyes. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not cling to me. A perverse heart shall depart from me. I will not know wickedness. Again, living on purpose. And the implication is that David had purged his house of anything that would cause him to think ungodly thoughts tempt him or trip him up in some way he had the internet was not even invented in those days of course um, today there are so many unlimited ways for us to be defiled in our own homes that's why you have to purge your house of any unclean thing that would defile you starts with purging your heart before God turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6 Deuteronomy chapter 6, uh, starting with verse 6. It says, And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. Verse 8, You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. In other words, surround your environment, surround your house 
with the Word of God, with the presence of God, right? Starts with the parents. You can't just fill your house with Christian verses and little neat Christian sayings if you're not going to live it yourself. It's got to be in your head. It's got to be something that your hands are always working towards serving God. But God was trying to tell his people, look, it starts in the heart. It starts in your house. You've got to surround, fill your house with my word that your children, when they grow, are constantly being fed a diet of my word, right? We don't have time, but in Acts chapter 19, you can just write this down. As Paul was ministering in Ephesus, many were getting saved. Ephesus was an incredible city in those days. Um, it was very well known, very famous, very wealthy city. But part of their fame was that they were a very occultic town. A very occultic town. So now Paul's preaching the gospel there. People are getting saved. What are they doing? They start bringing all of their occult paraphernalia to the town square and burning it. They burned it. it the um, um, amount was, Acts 19, verses 19 to 20, uh, everything that they burned was worth 50,000 pieces of silver. Somebody has pointed out that's enough. Uh, that's the wages for one year of 150 men. Now, they didn't have a garage sale. They, they, you know, they didn't put it on, you know, uh, eBay. You don't sell evil. You, you get rid of it, right? When we got saved, I, we went through the house, purged our house of any kind of Catholic statues we had, any kind of secular albums, and it was a lot of money. We, the albums especially, we didn't give them away. We broke them and threw them out. Why would I want to infect somebody else with a defiling thing if God's delivering us from those defilements? I'm not going to make money on people. That stuff is to be gotten rid of. Thrown out, burned, whatever you do with it, right? Very important. One, author, one pastor said, look, they burn the stuff. Don't give the stuff away. They burn the stuff. Folks, don't sell the stuff you know is harmful. Be like these guys. Trash it, pour it down the drain, flush it down the toilet. Destroy it. Amen. Right? All right, as we close, how do we stay undefiled from the world? Well, we purpose in our hearts, first of all, to be undefiled. We plan our day that we don't go anywhere or do anything or hang with anyone that might defile us. We purge our houses of any defiling things, right? And let me just go back and say this. After they purged their houses, Acts 19, uh, verse 19, right? It says in verse 20 that, um, uh, So the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. Forgot to mention that. I believe when you purge your lives of that which is defiling, it opens the door for a flood of the Holy Spirit. Everything comes alive. Your walk, your reading of the word, your devotions, and so on. Okay? So purpose in your heart, planning your day, purging your house. Number four, promises of God. I chose that because it's a P word. No. Uh, promises of God. What do you mean, promises of God? I've just promises of God as in believing and clinging to the promises of God's word. I like Second Peter 1 verse four on the subject by which we have been given uh, which has been given to us god has given to us exceedingly great and precious 
promises that through these we might escape the corruption that is in the world through lust. God has promised us, but again, it implies we want it. How much do we want to live a holy, undefiled life for God? But God says he has promised us, given us many great and precious promises by which we become partakers of the divine nature, that's true, and escape the corruptions in the world through lust. A couple of examples of God's great and precious promises that we cling to on this topic are, I just think of Galatians 5.16, walk in the Spirit and you will what? Not fulfill the lust of the flesh. That's a promise of God. It implies an active role. Remember I said the best defense is a good strong offense. I love Isaiah 41.10, one of my favorite scriptures. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. God says, I know you're weak. Don't try to be victorious in your own strength. The battle belongs to who? The Lord. Come to me. Trust me. I know you're weak. Acknowledge your weakness. I will give you the strength to live a holy life and to serve me. Guys, in closing, understand that God blesses those who keep themselves pure from the pollutions of the world. I love Psalm 119, verses 1 to 3. Blessed are the undefiled in the way who walk in the law of the Lord, the word of God. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with, listen, the whole heart. Half-hearted Christianity doesn't cut it, guys. They also do no iniquity. They walk in his ways. Let me close by saying this. The problem with living in darkness as we are living in. this I've never seen a time when our country is more dark. Morally and spiritually. The problem with living in darkness is, listen, you start getting used to the darkness and actually start thinking you're living as a light. You start thinking that because we Christians aren't as sinful as those in the world, our <laughs> compromises aren't that bad. Now we actually deceive ourselves into thinking that we are lights in the darkness instead of what's really going on, that we are now part of the darkness. One of my favorite old Baptist preachers, Vance Havner, said something on this subject I really need to read and we'll close. One more Quote, he said, and I quote, We are living in the dark. We were born into it, and it was born in us. We, are children of, we were children of darkness at one time, but when we received the gospel, we became children of light. At that point, the darkness inside us was replaced with light, but we find ourselves still living in the moral and spiritual darkness of this world, which is all around us. We are living at the close of an age that is dominated by the prince and powers of darkness, a world where men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. But the night is far spent, the day of Christ's return is at hand, and yet it is always blackest before the dawn. The darkness has never been more pervasive and persuasive in my lifetime than it is today in our nation. Not only do we live in the darkest Christians, We've gotten used to the dark. 
We have all had the experience of walking into a very dark room where all we could see was blackness. But after a few seconds, our eyes adjusted and we got used to the dark. This has happened to many Christians spiritually and morally. We are all experiencing a slow, subtle, and sinister brainwashing process that is gradually desensitizing us to the darkness. Little by little, sin is being made to look less and less sinful until the light that is in us is darkness. And as Jesus said, if the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? The result is we no longer hate evil. We don't abhor it. We've gotten used to the dark, end quote. Folks, don't get used to the darkness around you. Jesus is coming soon. Don't get used to the darkness around you, and heaven forbid, don't ever lower your guard and become part of it, thinking that just because you're not as bad as others in the world, it's not darkness, it's, you're still a light. Jesus commanded us to come out of the darkness and be separate. Only then can we rescue people from the darkness. You can't rescue people from darkness if you're walking in darkness. Jesus commanded us to come out of the darkness and be separate. Only then can we rescue people from the darkness and bring them into God's marvelous light. Amen? Amen. May God help us. Father, we echo the prayer of our Savior 2,000 years ago that, Father, you would keep your church in a place where we would hate the darkness, love the people of the darkness and want to see them saved, but that we would hate this world of darkness, not give into it, not think it's not so bad. Give us grace to abhor the darkness, to not be a part of any darkness, because, Lord, it says of you and your word, that you are a God of light and in you is no darkness at all. Please give us grace, Lord, to walk in your light more and more unto the perfect day you're coming. And we just ask you to keep blessing these studies in your word for your glory. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen.